I wonder what comes to mind when you hear the word lament. Uh, Lament technically means, if you looked in the dictionary, to feel or to express sorrow. It means to mourn. And if you're anything like me, it's not something that's a part of your everyday life. In fact, we spend a lot of time and money to keep ourselves from feeling sorrow and grief. Oftentimes, lament comes with negative connotations, doesn't it? This morning, we're going to talk a little bit about lament. And before we begin to look at the scripture together, I wonder what you would think if I told you that lament is supposed to be a normal part of the Christian life. Lament is supposed to be a normal part of the Christian experience as we live in this world and follow Jesus. That an authentic life, a life that is in the world, living in reality, will include expressions of sorrow and grief. It's not the totality of the Christian experience. We could talk about love, joy, peace, patience this morning. But this morning we're going to talk about a very important aspect of the Christian experience. And that's lament. To do that, we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 1. It's printed for you in your bulletin if you don't have a copy of God's Word. If you do, you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1 and you can follow along as I read. 2 Samuel chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head ran up. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Skipping to verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they'd fallen by the sword. And then in verse 17. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it's written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Let the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. For the blood of the slain, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it shapes and forms our hearts and our lives. 
We pray this morning that it would do just that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The call came at 3.30 on that Sunday afternoon. It was a bright, sunny day, and we just sent Eric's younger brother off to the plane to be with Eric for the summer. Mr. Volterstorff, yes, I said. Is this Eric's father? Yes. Mr. Volterstorff, I must give you some bad news. Yes. Eric's been climbing in the mountains, and he's had an accident. Yes. Eric has had a serious accident. Yes. Mr. Volterstorff, I must tell you, Eric is dead. Mr. Volterstorff, are you there? You must come at once. Mr. Volterstorff, Eric is dead. For three seconds, I felt the peace of resignation, arms extended, limp son in hand, offering him to someone, someone with a capital S. Then the pain, cold, burning pain. So begins the work of Nicholas Volterstor, former philosophy professor at Yale University, also a Christian. He writes a book for his son, Eric, who died while mountain climbing, called Lament for a Son. Eric was 25 years old, and he fell off a mountain while hiking in Austria. At another part of his book, he wrote this, thinking about Eric. There's a hole in the world now. In the place where he was, there's now just nothing. There's nobody now who saw just what he saw, knows what he knew, remembers what he remembered, loves what he loved. My son is gone. Only a hole remains. The book is 100 pages long. One of the hardest books that I've uh, had to read. Uh, very hard to get through. But through the book, Walter Storff talks about pain and grief, lamenting the death of his son. And you might be thinking at this point, Michael, isn't that an extreme example of lament? I mean, after all, not all of us experience the death of a child in life. Not all of us experience the death, uh, or not all of us will experience the death of a spouse in life. But all of us do experience grief and pain in this world. All of us do experience situations in our life that call for lament. Lament is different than complaint or getting upset. That's important to lay the groundwork uh, right off the bat as far as that's concerned. Lament is different than just getting upset. Lament is grief expressed before God's face. It's purposeful grief. It's purposeful, um, it's purposeful mourning. I like how one theologian puts it. He says, lament is experiencing, identifying, and emotionally responding in God's presence to the gap between what is and what could have been. The gap between what is and what could have been. I wonder where that gap is for you this morning. The gap between what is and what could have been. What's worthy of lament in your life this morning? There are obvious things that I think of, uh, ways that we could answer that question. Uh, things like guilt and shame that we all carry around in our own hearts and lives on a daily basis. It's worthy of our lament. Things like sickness, things like death, just like the little girl here said. Things like marital dysfunction, relational breakdown, 
These are all things that come to my mind when I think of things that might be worthy of our lament. But then there's other things that aren't so obvious, things that we should lament, but oftentimes we don't. Things like violence and injustice here in our community, here in San Antonio, around the world. Things like poverty or greed in world economic systems. Things like natural disasters. Things like difficulty with having children. These are all things that are worthy of our lament. They, these are things that we should lament. We live in a fallen world. You know that as well as I. Like how one author says, we were created to live with God in a garden, yet we wake every morning in the desert of this fallen world. Things in your life, things in this world, are not the way they're supposed to be. They don't work right. They haven't worked right since Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord. And we are experiencing and living the consequences of that disobedience, of our disobedience. And so the question for us this morning is, how are we supposed to deal with the gap between what is and what could be? How are we supposed to live in the midst of this fallen world? What are we supposed to do with the sadness that we experience in our lives? Should we complain? Should we brush it aside? Should we simply just get over it? Luckily for us, the Bible is a book that addresses the gap that we experience. It addresses the reality of this world and this life, the broken quality of life. We too are called to be a people that address that brokenness, that live in reality. At another point in his book, Walter Storff says this, I, I will look at the world through tears, and perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed I could not see. In many ways, as Christians, that's our calling, to look at the world through tears. And perhaps you and I might see things that dry-eyed we were not able to see before. We see David face this gap. We're jumping right into the middle of the David story. I'm not going to give a ton of context uh, for our story this morning because I think it stands on its own. But he teaches us what it looks like to lament. And we're going to look at this with three quick questions. We're going to ask these questions, what is lament, why should I lament, and how do we lament? First, what is lament? We see that lament is brought on in David's life by bad news in this story. God's people have been engaged in battle with the Philistines. Israel was a country, the Philistines were a country, and they were fighting each other. And David receives bad news from the battlefront as we pick up in this story. He receives this news in verse 4. Somebody came to him. David said, how did it go? Tell me. And the messenger answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. This news would have been heartbreaking for David. Not only had Israel been defeated in battle, not only had God's name been defamed around that vicinity in which they lived, God's honor was damaged, but more than that, for David personally, Jonathan, his best friend, if you know anything about First and Second Samuel, was dead as well. Saul, Israel's king, dead as well. The gap between what is and what could have been is rapidly expanding at this point in David's life. And the question for us is, what did David do 
with this rapidly expanding gap. We see David's response in verses 11 and 12. Did he complain? Did he just get over it? Here's what he did. He took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they'd fallen by the sword. What David does is he openly acknowledges and expresses his grief and his pain and his sorrow before God's face. We see David express a passionate grief and sorrow before God. He's protesting the broken quality of life that he's experiencing in his life. He fills the gap between what is and what could have been with lament, with sorrow. And you and I are called to do the same thing. There was a news story a few months ago out of the United Kingdom about a baby boy named Lucas. And the news story uh, went on to say that Lucas uh, was born, he's four months old, uh, with a heart defect. Born with a heart defect uh, that was so serious that doctors told his mother and father that they weren't um, allowed to let Lucas cry. Because if he cried, it would put so much pressure on his heart that it would risk him losing his life. And they um, they actually ask his mom, Amy, some questions in this article. uh, And she says uh, this. He's four months old, and we can't let him get upset. We cuddle him, we give him a sucker, we comfort him, do anything to stop him from crying. She said, there's a number of things me and my husband do, things that we do with our boy to keep him from crying, But Amy says that the hardest thing that she's experienced in her life is to keep her four-month-old from crying. And if you've ever had kids, you can resonate with her. I've got a seven-month-old right now. I can't imagine keeping her from crying. Because crying is natural for babies, isn't it? Crying is something that babies are meant to do. And whether we know it or not this morning, lament is something that Christians are supposed to do. It's supposed to be natural for us as followers of Jesus. But instead of lamenting, if you're anything like me, you're always doing fine, aren't you? You're just doing fine. Because lament is uncomfortable, isn't it? It's uncomfortable to express our grief and our sorrow before God and before one another. But I guess I'd just stop and ask the question at that point, why is that such a bad thing to be uncomfortable? Why is it such a bad thing to be uncomfortable with one another with the way that our lives in this world works? Not lamenting as Christians is as silly as a four-month-old not crying. In Matthew chapter 5, I don't know if you've ever read the book of Matthew, but Jesus has the chance to describe what a Christian looks like. He gives us eight characteristics in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And out of eight characteristics, I wonder how you would fill in those eight characteristics. Jesus thought it so important that he included one that said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Christians are meant to be those who mourn. We're called to mourn over the sin that we find in ourselves, our own failures, our own shortcomings, and the shortcomings and failures that we experience in this world. We're called to express our sorrow before the face of God. What's worthy of lament in your life this morning, I wonder? Second, let's turn and ask the question, why should we lament? Why does David teach and even require God's people in 2 Samuel to memorize this lament? Why are we called to lament? Why should we even do this? You might be thinking that at this point. This is a downer, Michael. You know, 
Why should we lament as Christians? Well, there's a number of reasons that we could talk about this morning, but I want to outline three quickly. First, we lament because we care. We lament because we're a group of people who take love and truth seriously. David mourns both his enemy and his friend, and it's obvious that David would mourn Jonathan. I mean, after all, he was his best friend. But the fact that David mourns Saul uh, should stand out to us. Because if you know anything about First and Second Samuel, you know that David was next in line to be the king. Saul had been killed, and now it meant that he was going to rise up to the throne. He should be happy. He should be excited. But we see him mourning both Saul and Jonathan. And by mourning them, he gives them weight and honor through his lament. Nicholas Volterstorff says this at another portion in his book. I will not look away from Eric dead. It's demonic awfulness. I will not ignore it. I owe that to him and to God. If he was worth loving, he's worth grieving over. The more we love something, the more we grieve and mourn when it doesn't work right. The more we grieve and mourn when we lose what it was meant to be. And so as followers of Christian, we lament death because life matters. As followers of Christ, we lament broken relationships because whole relationships should matter to us. As followers of Jesus, we lament marriage dysfunction because marriage should matter to you and me. We lament injustice and hate because as followers of Jesus, justice and love should matter to us. Secondly, we lament in order to become mature Christians living in reality. There's one Hebrew scholar that says 70% of the Psalms could be classified lament. And if you know anything about the Psalms, you know that they're meant to guide and to shape us into maturity, into Christian maturity. And so you could say that 70% of life before God is meant or supposed to be lament. Now, I know that Israel is going through a certain time in the Psalms uh, that we don't experience, and so maybe we shouldn't experience 70% of lament in life. But I think you'd agree that uh, for those who are meant to be characterized by grieving and sorrow, we're out of balance. Out of balance as Christ's followers. Lament's an essential ingredient of an honest faith. That's what the Psalms teach us. In fact, a lack of lament in my life and in your life is unbiblical and it's inhuman. I mean, after all, God tends to work most deeply and profoundly in our lives during the hard times, doesn't he? When we grieve and when we express sorrow, that's when God has a chance to work most deeply in our hearts. And if we never allow ourselves to experience that, I wonder how much of God's goodness we're actually forfeiting by not lamenting. We cultivate spiritual health and maturity as we learn to lament, to live before God's face. And thirdly, we lament because we're preparing ourselves to experience future joy and comfort. I've got a friend, a pastor friend in Knoxville, Tennessee, where I went to school. Uh, He's a little bit older than me, and he's talking about as he gets older in life, he's finding it harder as he reads novels, and he reads a ton of books throughout the week and month. 
he finds it harder to, to stay uh, in the middle of the story. He says he'll read the beginning, and then he'll skip to the end. I don't know if you've ever done this with books, but to see how it ends, uh, that's what he is prone to do as he's getting older. And he says that as he does that, as he skips to the end and reads the end and doesn't stay in the middle, he finds himself not enjoying the books as much. He doesn't enjoy the resolution that comes. And in much the same way, we often want to skip ahead in life. We don't want to sit in the middle. We want to skip ahead to the resolution. And as we do that, we're not preparing ourselves for the future goodness that God promises us in his word. We've got to live in the middle if we want to experience that goodness that's coming at the end. By living in the pain, we actually prepare ourselves to experience that. But you and I, we're tempted to get over it or to make a little of it. The middle, that is. We don't want to live in the middle. And I understand, I mean, the middle is often too much to bear, isn't it? Oftentimes, in our lives, in this world, it's just too much to bear. I mean, some of us in the room, broken marriage might be in our past. Others of us are experiencing job frustrations and situations. Others of us might be experiencing sickness that doesn't seem to go away or disobedient children that we don't know what to do with. And it's hard to live in that middle spot. Oftentimes we say, just take it away. Instead of living there and lamenting those things, we tend to numb them. Just take it away. And as many people as are sitting in this room is as many different ways that we take it away. We numb it. We say, I don't want to experience this. Take it away. And so what we do is we drink it away. I don't want to experience this. Take it away. And so what we do is sleep it away. Others of us buy it away. Some of us porn it away. A lot of us work it away. And we're numbing ourselves from the goodness that God might have for us in the midst of our lament. We're destroying our spiritual health. We're doling ourselves to reality. And lastly and quickly, ask the question, how do we lament? David wanted God's people to acknowledge the gap between what was and what could have been in their life. And in verse 18 in this story, we actually see David teaching God's people how to lament. In a way, asking them to memorize this lament. He's teaching them to live in reality. And they needed this. They needed to be given words to express their sorrow to God because they didn't know how to do it. As we learn lament from David, I think it's important uh, that we learn two things from how David lamented. First, when we see David lament, we see that he was intimately aware of God's presence even in the midst of his lamentation. Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. In the midst of his sorrow and his pain, David intimately knew that God was one that was with him. Secondly, we see David as he laments, being one who ended all of his laments in the Psalms with a note of hope. There's one psalm that doesn't end with a note of hope, that's Psalm 88, but David did not write that psalm. All the ones that David wrote, even though he might be at the depth of lament, towards the end, he extends and offers resolution and hope. Lament didn't derail David's trust and confidence in God's love and control. He knew that God would one day, someday, come and make all things right. 
He cast his eyes towards that hope in the midst of his lament. Lament is actually supposed to increase our desire for God. By lamenting, we get more of God. And lastly, we often want answers, don't we? When it comes, uh, you know, when we experience things in this life, uh, in this world, uh, that don't um, seem to go as we planned, uh, that bring great heartache uh, to our lives, we want answers. And I want answers too a lot of times. But the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of particular answers to our particular situations. Don't take that the wrong way. I think the Bible gives us a lot of answers. But sometimes it doesn't answer our particular situation, but I think it does something better than that. The Bible tells us a story of a God who laments with us. Of a God who comes and experiences our sorrow and our pain. Who took on flesh to do that with us. God is one who shares our pain. Look at Isaiah 53. How is God described there? How does Isaiah describe the one that's to come? Jesus, as a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. Jesus was well acquainted with grief. The one who heals us by his wounds. Jesus came to share in our pain And he came to heal our pain with his wounds. He's doing that now truly, and he'll do that one day completely when he returns to make all things right. God is one who knows something about lament. If you don't believe me, just look at the cross. That is God's lament over a broken world. And it's how God restores a broken world. God's lament over the pain and sorrow that we experience. One of the favorite things that we do in our house is read the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's a, it's a Bible with a lot of pictures in it, um, and it's a great little read. We actually did a, a college Bible study with the Jesus Storybook Bible last semester, and it was amazing. Uh, we did the Old Testament with college students, and they never saw Jesus in the Old Testament like they saw it in this Jesus Storybook Bible. But one of the things that they used to love to do, they don't do it anymore as much, but every night they wanted to read the crucifixion story. That sends you to bed on a good note, doesn't it? You know, have sweet dreams, kids. Um, But we would read the crucifixion story, and in this particular Bible there's a picture of Jesus, and he's hanging on the cross, and he's got scars on his chest and a crown of thorns on his head, and tears are rolling down his cheek in this particular Bible, and it, it happened without fail every night. My, my boy Caleb and my daughter Abigail, um, every night when we read that story, um, would yell out, interrupting me, saying, Daddy, 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 why is he crying? Daddy, why are they hurting him? Daddy, why are they killing him? And I had the chance at that point, it was actually a softball in some ways that they were lobbing up to me, so that I could hit it out of the park. A chance to tell them that he is crying, they're hurting him, they're killing him, so that we could be restored. So that we could experience wholeness and renewal and restoration. The other interesting thing that my kids wanted to do before they went to bed was go on and read the resurrection story, which followed the crucifixion story in this particular Bible, in all Bibles actually. But they never wanted to go to bed without reading the resurrection story. And I couldn't help but think, as my boy Caleb wanted to read the resurrection story, that that's the way it should be. Because we can't stop at the crucifixion. We've got to move on to the resurrection. 
because the crucifixion is God with us in the gap between what is and what could have been, and the resurrection is God filling in the gap. We're in a story, and the story that we live in will consist of lots of pain and sorrow, but the story is large enough to handle your lament. God is large enough to handle your grief and your sorrow, and everything comes together in the end in this story. Because God stands with us in the gap and promises to one day close it, and you and I actually can read the end of the story if we wanted to, couldn't we? You can flip to Revelation in your Bible. Revelation chapter 21, where we get a taste of where we're headed. And this is how Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4 read. The end of the story. We're living in the middle, but this is where we're going. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. As a believer of Jesus, that's where you're headed. That's where I'm headed. And we're going to live in the midst of pain and sorrow in the middle of the story now. But as we live in the middle of the story God wants us to keep our eyes cut towards the end and to follow him with faithfulness and love, lamenting before him and receiving his goodness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are one who experiences our temptations. You are one who is able to sympathize with us. You are one who actually laments over this broken world. We see it most clearly in your cross. Lord, we thank you that we are headed to a day when you will wipe away every tear from every eye. And we pray that you would help us to keep that day in mind as we live in this one. In Christ's name, amen.